Today's message has been brought to you by Faith Family Church in Billings, Montana. For more information, visit faithfamilybillings.com. I am excited to be here. My wife and I were here about a year ago. Um, But the last time we were here, I'm a little bit upset with y'all's pastors. Um, Because the last time we were here, they didn't tell us about this one place in particular. And my wife and I got to experience it today. Um, I'm not talking about Red Lodge. We did go to Red Lodge. Really cool. I'm talking about Shields. I could give an altar call right now, and I think every one of y'all would respond. Like, Shields. It is like the Christian version of Walmart. I told my wife, we went in there, I did a horrible job of packing, and I told my wife this morning, I was like, I don't know what I was doing. Um, I can't blame it on the kids, because they weren't bothering me at the time. Um, For that five-minute stretch, they weren't bothering me, but I didn't pack any socks. Um, There's just things I just didn't pack, Um, and for some reason, socks was one of them, and I'm a sock guy. Like, it's on the back of my book. I'm, I'm, I'm a bit of a sock snob. Um, I have a ridiculously large sock collection. It is what it is, but I didn't bring any, um, at least not for what we were doing today. I brought my, my, my fancier socks that I wear when I preach and stuff, but um, calm down, calm down. Um, but so I needed some socks, and you know, we had planned on doing a couple things today, and uh, Pastor Heidi was telling us, like, y'all should really go check out Shields. I was like, Okay, why don't you just spend my money, Pastor Heidi? Um, Because they also, she also said they have a Hey Dude collection. Well, I also have a Hey Dude collection. Um, And so that collection got one pair bigger for me and one pair bigger for my wife today. Um, For everybody who ever said amen and laughed, y'all owe me $5 to help pay for the... But anyway, no, Shields is amazing. It was... Like, everybody, that they were so nice. You know, it, I, I really thought I was at Chick-fil-A. I was waiting on somebody to come hand me some nuggets or something because, like, they were just so nice. So, uh, but I don't know. Shields was amazing. I told Pastor Sean, I was like, we'll move out here just for Shields. Because, um, <laughs> no joke, my wife started looking them up. Where's the closest Shields to us? And it is a long way. Uh, they don't have any in North Carolina, so we're stuck with Walmart and Target. You, you got to pray just before you go to Walmart um, just because it's Walmart. And then Target, I don't know what bathroom you're going to, but there might be somebody in there that you don't think should be in there with you is all I'm going to say. So anyway, I don't know why I started with all that, but I did. One thing I couldn't find at Shields, my book. Um, <laughs> a little segue there. No, um, I was here last year, brought my book with me, but if any of y'all weren't here, Um, and you're interested in getting a copy of my book, uh, we will have it after the service. It is $15. I used to say it's $15, you know, or, you know, your firstborn. But then people started trying to give us their kids, and we've got three, um, and they're girls, and so I'm losing, and so I don't want any more. But we will have that available for you after service. It's basically my testimony. I am going to be sharing my testimony with you tonight, but in my book I go into a lot more detail than I have time to go into in a service. Um, or we'd be here for a long time. Uh, So that will be available after service if you're interested. If not, God bless you anyway. Um, But I just want to just kind of jump into tonight, Pastor. Pastor Sean kind of told me what what he was wanting for this weekend, and so testimony seemed to be the right thing to do. Uh, I will tell you this. If you were here last year and you or you've heard me share it before, my testimony comes out different almost every time I share it. Uh, There's just so many little intricacies of my testimony um, that sometimes I share, sometimes I don't. It just depends on how, you know, the Spirit of God's leading me. You know, sometimes I lose my left arm. You never know what's going to happen. So so we're just going to kind of jump into it and just see what God wants to do here tonight, if that's okay with y'all. If it's not okay with y'all, we're going to do it anyway. Um, But, you know, it just seemed like the nice thing to say. Um, But anyway, uh, when I was 18 years old, Um, I was actually working two jobs. 
Um, I had just graduated from high school. I was getting really close to going off to my college orientation uh, where I was going to be going to Appalachian State. And I, my first job that I had, I'd been working for two years. I was uh, working at Taco Bell. You know, I was the annoying guy that, you know, when you came through the drive-thru, I was like, welcome to the border. Can I take your order? You know, that was, that was me when people came through my window. Um, and so I'd been doing that, like I said, for two years. But my dad, who had been working at this glass factory, he said, hey, um, we're looking to hire some help for the summer. Would you be interested in coming out here and working? And so I asked him, you know, how much are y'all going to pay? And he, he told me, and it was like twice what I was getting paid to make tacos. And I'm like, let's do it. You know, and so the first day on the job, I found out it was me and seven other guys who had taken up their parents' offer. We were all children of employees that worked there. And basically what they were having us do was we were doing all the work that nobody else wanted to do. They sent us into the dirtiest, nastiest parts of the factory. They called our team the rats because we were the ones in the nasty areas. And um, like the first eight days on the job, we were all working in this area called the hot end. And for those of you who don't know, uh, you know, how the glass making process works, basically they'll, they'll as they get the glass kind of formed, they'll run it through a furnace. And if there are any imperfections in the glass, it would shatter and fall to the bottom of the furnace. Well, somebody, they couldn't just let that glass pile up and pile up and pile up, so somebody had to go in and rake that out. So why not the eight soon-to-be college students? And so first day on the job, we're in there with these really long metal rakes, and we're down on our knees like this, and we're shoving these metal rakes inside of this furnace, dropping it on the, the ground on the opposite side of the furnace and pulling these rakes out. Well, these furnaces, I, I'm, I'm not exactly sure. I think it was like maybe 1,800 degrees where this area was. It's hotter in another end. But in this area, it was like 1,800 degrees. And so we're running these metal rakes into this furnace. And I don't know if you know much about science, but if you put something metal inside of something hot, it gets hot. So we're pulling these things out and... Every single one of us, all eight of us, had blisters on our forearms from where we were pulling these rakes out of this furnace. And so that was literally what we did for the first eight days that we were working there. Ninth day, they sent us out to an area called the silos, and they kind of split our team in two. Uh, me and a couple other guys went up to the top of the silo while the rest of the guys were working down at the bottom. And basically, the silo was where the whole glassmaking process started. Uh, this, they had this powdery type substance, and I'm, I'm trying to remember what the name of it was. Um, I know it was, there was sand, and I think it was like dolomite or something like that, um, and one other, one other ingredient. But they would mix it all together, and then when they would run it through the, the furnace, it would form together and, and, and make glass. Um, and so when they had this powdery substance, they would drop it down on this conveyor belt, and so it would land on the conveyor belt. Well, this, the dust would billow up and settle on the ground. Well, the factory had been open for, you know, 25, 30 years at the time. And where they had been dropping this powdery substance over and over and over again, like this dust is starting to pile up on the ground. And then if it got wet, it really clumped together, like really hard. And so what they had us doing well, the ninth day, me and some other guys were working up top while the rest of the guys were working on the bottom. Tenth day, we're all working down at the bottom of the silos. And so what we're doing is we're taking shovels and we're busting this powdery substance up that had clumped together and we're loading it into wheelbarrows. And from there, we're taking our wheelbarrows from our job site uh, to this machine called a screw auger. We would dump the debris into the auger. The debris would go in and then the, as the auger turned, it would push the debris up a up through this tube and then into a dumpster on the opposite side. So this is basically what our job is. You could have one of four jobs when, you're, when we were working out there in the silos. You could have a shovel in your hand busting the debris up. You could be running the wheelbarrow back and forth from the job site. There was one guy whose job was to stand at the base of the screw auger. And his job is make sure everything goes into the screw auger the way it's supposed to. 
And then on the opposite end of the screw auger, where the debris would go up and it would fall into a dumpster, there was a guy standing there with a shovel or a rake, and he would push everything where it would fall out. He would push it to the back of the dumpster so it all didn't pile up under that opening. So, well, let me ask you this real quick, because not everybody knows. How many people you know what a screw auger is? Okay, a few of you. All right, how many of you know what a screw is? Okay, a couple more hands. All right, how many of you are not going to raise your hand no matter what question I ask? There's always a couple hands, always. Um, well, if you don't know what a screw auger is, it's basically a giant screw with a casing that wraps around it. And so when you dump debris into this auger, the, it gets caught in the threads of this giant screw. So as it turns, it just forces that debris up and it would fall out into a dumpster. So this is all we've been doing all day. And I had either had a shovel in my hand busting the debris up and loading it into a wheelbarrow, or I had been running the wheelbarrow back and forth from our job site to where the auger was. We went on our lunch break, and when we came back, one of the guys was like, hey, everybody, let's just switch jobs. Everybody rotate and do a different job. And so now it was the first time I was now the guy standing at the base of the screw auger. And again, our job is when you're standing here, your job is make sure everything goes down okay. They didn't say if it doesn't go down okay, this is what you do. They just said make sure it goes down okay. And my dad had gotten me this job, and he told me, he said, I've been working here for 23 years, and it took me 23 years to earn a good reputation out here. Don't you come ruin it in one summer. <laughs> yes, sir. A message received loud and clear. And so when it came to me getting my job done, like I wanted to do the best I could because I didn't want to embarrass my dad. So the very first load that we did when we came back from lunch, a guy that I played baseball with my entire life, um, I see him coming, coming through the bottom of the silos with a wheelbarrow, and he comes up and he dumps a load into the auger. Well, he heads back down. Well, I look down in, and I can see that the auger is turning the way it's supposed to, but there was one piece of debris that was a little bit too big to go down into the threads the way it was supposed to. Now, I'm going to pause it here for just one second um, because I see some people already starting to squirm. Um, I'm not going to go into a whole lot of detail only because over the years I've had nine people pass out as I've shared my testimony. And I'm just going to ask you, don't do that. Um, because it's distracting and a little bit rude. Um, no, no. Um, I, I, I used to go into a lot of detail. I used to show pictures and all that kind of stuff. And then when people, I don't want to get to double digits tonight. Well, I'll get, to, I'll get to number 10 at some other point in time. So just don't pass out. I'll give you enough detail so that you know what's going on. But I won't go into all the details that I could. Um, so when I see that load get dumped in, the one thing I hadn't told you yet was that all of the safety equipment had been removed from this piece of machinery. The opening, they call it the hopper, where you dump all the debris that goes into the auger. There was supposed to be like a grating over the top of it so that, you know, you can't get your body parts, hands, clothes, anything like that stuck down inside the machine. Well, somebody had removed it because they said it slowed things down too much because you had to take these big pieces and you had to break them down into smaller pieces and it just made our job so much slower. So, hey, let's just take that off and, you know, wish you all the best of luck. And so that had been taken off, but there was also supposed to be these emergency kill strings that were ran up and down the side of the machine that if anything went wrong, all you had to do was pull the string and it would turn the machine off immediately. Well, those had been removed as well. I don't know why, but there was no safety equipment on this piece of machinery. So when this load gets dumped in, like I said, there was one piece and it was about the size of my Bible, I would say. And it went down into the auger, and it's just kind of like this. As the auger was rotating underneath it, this piece was just too big to get down into the threads. And I'm like, okay, it's not going down the way it's supposed to. It's my job to make sure everything goes down okay, so what do I do? And so I looked around on my job site for like a, a shovel or a rake or anything that I could try to break that piece of debris up with. Well, I didn't have anything there. And I've got my, my dad's words echoing you know, it took me 23 years to earn a good reputation, so I was like, just get the job done. So what I decided to do was reach in and grab that piece of debris, and I was going to take it out, bust it on the ground, 
pick the pieces back up and put it back into the auger. Stop squirming. If you pass out, I'm going to come smack you with my Bible. I'm just telling you right now. <laughs> um, but anyway, so when I reached in and grabbed it, I felt a tug. And what had happened was we had on these gloves, <laughs> they're safety gloves, believe it or not. Um, and what had happened was the very corner of my glove, like if my hand had been over probably a centimeter to a quarter of an inch, it wouldn't have got me. But what happened was when I reached in and grabbed that piece, the very corner of my glove, and I have a, I have a glove in my bag that's identical to the one I was wearing that day. Um, not the one I was wearing that day, just <laughs> chill out. Um, but it just barely grabbed the corner of my glove. And so I'll just let you know this. The machine was rotating in this direction, and I did too. Um, I started screaming, one, because it hurt. Um, and two, because I wanted somebody to come turn the machine off because at this point I was starting to be picked up off the ground and getting pulled in. And so the guy who was on the other end of the auger, he heard me screaming and he came and visited me when I was in the hospital. He said, when I turned around, you were almost halfway into the machine. And so he came running down the stairs, runs around the machine, gets it turned off. At this point, I'm not exactly sure how close I was. I had scratches down the side of my face because... As I was getting pulled into the hopper, I turned my head to the side, and so my, my face got really scratched up. But I was really close to being into the machine, and this shoulder had dislocated, and this shoulder had too, because I was holding on to the outside of the machine, trying to stop myself from going in. But even though my shoulder was dislocated, when the machine got turned off, I just pulled myself out, and when I did, my right arm was gone. And... I was just standing there, and the guy who turned the machine off, he was just standing there staring at me, and then he just turned around and took off running. And I was like, dude, where are you going? Um, I didn't know where he was going, but I knew I didn't want to be by myself, so I took off running after him. Um, not the smartest thing to do when you're losing a lot of blood is to really get that heart rate pumping, but I had never had my arm ripped off by a machine before, and I didn't really know what to do. So I just took off running, and... As I'm running, I'm like, what am I doing? Like, where am I going? Like, I'm right now I'm just running. And then I remembered there was an office that was about probably 50 to 75 yards away. And I was like, well, I don't know where he's going, but that's where I'm going. And so ran through the bottom of the silos, up a flight of stairs, through a door. And then I ran up to this office and I ran up to the window and I just stood there looking in. There's this big plate glass window and I literally just ran up and I just stood there and looked in. I didn't, I didn't knock on the window. I didn't open the door and say, hey, anybody in here have a Band-Aid or anything like that? I, I basically just stood there looking in. And there were three guys in the office. And the, the one guy, he, he's, he was like the first one to see me. And he turned to the other guys and said, call for help. And they were like, okay, but we can't go out there because they couldn't handle the sight of blood. That was just one of their things. And he's like, okay, well, just listen for me because if I need something, I need you to get it to me. So he comes running out of the office and he tackles me down on the ground, which seemed a little excessive, but he told me, he said, you were in such shock that I was scared that if I didn't get you down on the ground that you were going to take off running again. So he gets me down on the ground and I'm, I'm bleeding profusely at this point. And so he's yelling at the guys in the office, I need paper towels. And so the office door opens, and a hand comes out holding one paper towel. <laughs> yeah, I mean, these guys were geniuses. So, so he takes that paper towel, and he just puts it on my arm, and it immediately just soaks through. He's like, I need more paper towels. So the door opens again. A hand comes out holding one paper towel. Same thing, puts it on there, immediately soaks through. He's like, and I need the hole, and he said some non-Christian words, roll. Um, so the guy yanks the thing off the wall and just shoves it out the door. And so he just starts wrapping my arm in paper towels. One of the next guys that got to me was actually the last baseball coach I ever had. And he was in the, he was in the Navy. And so he basically turned himself into a human tourniquet. Um, he came and he knelt down and I don't normally share this, but for some reason I feel like I, I need to tonight. Um, 
he came and he knelt down beside me and he put his knee down like my head would have been right here. So his, his knee was right next to my head. Like I couldn't look to the right if I wanted to. And I know he didn't want me to see what he was about to do because he, he took his hand and he stuck it like under my arm and just squeezed as hard as he could, just trying to slow my blood loss. Um, one of the next guys that got to me was my dad. And he had been in this meeting in the front office and somebody, like a call went out. One of the college students has been hurt in the silos. So everybody that has any ability is heading in that direction. And so my dad heads out that way. He gets there to me, and I'm laying there on the ground looking up at the ceiling, and I see my dad just kind of appear because he had come in from the right-hand side, but I can't look that way because of that knee right by my face. And so I see my dad come, and I saw this look on his face, and he took his, he had his pager on his hip, and he took it off, and he turned around, and he just threw it across the room and just shattered it. There was the silo. There was a train. It was like a, a train station too where they would come in and drop off the different ingredients or whatever and then head back out but there was a train there and he took he took that pager off and just turned and threw it and shattered it on the train and then my dad just kind of walked away which you know you might be thinking why would your dad walk away well my dad was in shock too and it was at this moment I, I actually I, I can't remember the last time I talked about this part but like I I don't know if I was dying or starting to die or what but at this point I had like an out-of-body experience like I was now it was like I was floating up at the ceiling and I was looking down and I could see like my body laying there I could see this puddle of blood that had formed beside me I could see where my coach was knelt down I could see my dad he had walked over to about right here and was just facing the opposite direction and I was telling my dad in the hospital afterwards about where everybody was standing. And there were people that were on my right-hand side that I would have never been able to see them because of where that knee was next to my face. The plant manager had come all the way out there, and he came to the edge of the silo, and he was just standing there peeking in. He wouldn't come in. He was just looking around the corner. And I told my dad exactly where he was. Well, I never would have known that because I couldn't look that way at all. Um, then the next guy gets there and my my baseball coach had walked away and he went over to my dad and said Jeff needs you so my dad came over and knelt back down and he grabbed my hand and he said let's pray and when he did it was I was back in my body again and laying there on the floor um, of the factory we said the Lord's Prayer together then the next guy gets there and he played a key role in saving my life because he runs up and he's, stand, he's standing right above my head. And so I'm looking up at the ceiling and I see him start taking his belt off. And I was like, hang on, it's not that kind of party. You know, like, <laughs> keep your pants on. We don't, you know, but I know what he, he, he took his belt off and he wrapped it around my arm and just cinched in a tourniquet absolutely as tight as he could. And a little while later, ambulance backs in. They load me up on a on a gurney, put me in the ambulance, drive me to the local hospital where, you know, my family met me a short time later. Um, I think it was like maybe an hour later, a helicopter gets there to fly me from the local hospital because the local hospital where I was was so small, they couldn't handle a case like mine. So they were just trying to basically keep me alive until they could get me somewhere that could handle a case like mine. So they load me up on a, another gurney and they're taking me out to the helicopter and that's when I found out that they were taking me to Duke University Medical Center. Well, as a North Carolina Tar Heel fan, the last place I want to go is Duke University Medical Center, you know. Like, if they find out I'm a Carolina fan, you know, they'll try to kill me, you know. Uh, I mean, they already root for the devil. I don't care what color that devil is, like a devil's the devil. Um, but, you know, I'm like, okay, well, you can take me there, you know, if, if they can reattach my arm, I'll say thank you. I'm still not going to pull for your basketball team, but I'll say thank you. So they fly me up to Duke University Medical Center. By the time I got there, I had lost three-fourths of my blood. And so they take me in for surgery, and I remember them when they gave me the anesthesia to put me to sleep. They had strapped me down to a table um, because I was still, there was times I was like hyperventilating. I never lost consciousness the whole time until they put me to sleep for surgery. I remember I, I was conscious the whole time. 
But I remember them giving me the anesthesia, and I started fighting because I was scared that if my eyes closed that they would never open again. So I was fighting. I was trying to get up off the table, and I couldn't because they had me strapped down, and they told me to count, I think, backwards from 100, and I think I got to whoa, um, and I was out. Um, and so I was in surgery for was it 13 hours, 13 hours, and they, were, they wanted to try to reattach my arm, but my arm had gotten really mangled as it went through the auger. Um, my hand made it all the way through the auger okay because of where the auger grabbed my glove. My, my hand just stayed right next to the thread, so it never messed up. But my wrist, my forearm, my elbow, everything else was just destroyed. So they knew they couldn't reattach my arm, but they came out to talk to my family, and they said, well, we can't reattach Jeff's arm. It was too mangled, but his hand made it all the way through the machine with no problem. So if you want, we can just smack his hand on the end of his, well, they probably didn't say smack, but <laughs> we can attach his hand to the end of his arm and, you know, he'll have his hand. And my family was like, well, okay, um, will he be able to use that hand? And they said, well, like, these are the words from the doctors. Well, probably not, but it's never been done before. I'm kind of thinking there's a reason it's never been done before. Like, if I would have woke up with a hand right here, like, clapping like a seal and, like, all this kind of stuff, like, no. Like, so thankfully my family was like, no, let's don't do that. Um, and so what they did was they actually cut the palm of my right hand off because I had more bone. I had bone down to, like, here at the time. I've had some surgery since to shorten it. Um, but I had more bone than I did skin, so they just cut the palm of my right hand off and put it over the end of my arm so that they didn't have to do all these skin grafts from everywhere else on my body. Um, but twice during that surgery, um, like my heart rate was kind of steady in the 60s, but there was twice during that surgery that it plummeted down into the 20s. So there was a couple times like they were kind of losing me, and they gave me this medicine. It got my heart rate back up again. Then about five minutes later, it plummeted again, and then they gave me the medicine again, and it got my heart rate back to where it was supposed to be. And like I said, I was in surgery for 13 hours, and then I was in the hospital for 16 days because I was now having to learn how to live my life left-handed because before my accident, I was right-handed. You know, people are like, well, now you're left-handed. I'm like, well, actually, I'm only handed, but whatever. Um, <laughs> And so um, I was having to learn how to do everything, brush my teeth, get dressed, everything with just my left hand. And so it was, a, it was very interesting trying to figure out how to live my life this way. And so hospital for 16 days, I lost like 30 pounds in that time. Um, and no, my right arm was not that muscular when I lost it. I wish I could be like, yeah, I was so jacked, but I wasn't. Um, I just, their hospital food was just garbage, and so I didn't want to eat it. Um, so I get out of the hospital. I started college 16 days later, even though I didn't have the ability to write yet because I was still learning how to write left-handed. So um, I started college um, and went one semester to a college really close to you know, my parents' house because like, I had all these follow-up appointments and surgeries and stuff, and I just couldn't go to college, with, uh, take a full load with everything I already had going on. And so... After one semester, I transferred up to Appalachian State where I was supposed to go in the first place. And at this point in my life, I was probably one of the most angry human beings you would ever want to meet. Oh, man. Like, if you had two arms, didn't like you. That's pretty much it. Except for my mom. I, I, did, I, I really liked my mom. But, like, everybody else didn't really care much. Like, if you had two arms, you have two. I don't. I didn't like you. Um... I started drinking just to try to, like, make things better. But the one thing I learned was, like, when I sobered up, still had one arm. So it didn't help, help me in any way. Like, it, it made things worse. And so I was trying everything I could to, to not feel how I felt because I was at the point that, I just, I hated my life. 
I hated what I looked at when I looked in the mirror. When I would get ready in the morning, I would slide all the way over to the edge of the mirror until the mirror cut me off right here, and I would fix my hair where I didn't have to look at my arm. Like, I hated what I looked at when I looked in the mirror. And I started dealing with suicidal thoughts. There were times I'm like, you know, going to college in the mountains of North Carolina, I was like, I could just be driving down this mountain road, pull right off the side of this cliff, and everybody thinks an accident. And nobody knows I'm really just trying to, wanted to kill myself. Like, that's where my life had gotten. I hated my life that much. But thankfully, I, I never did it. I, I just, <clears throat> I always looked at my family, and most of the time I looked at my mom. I was like, I can't do this to my mom. Um, so I never did it, but I started to make some friends there at Appalachian State. My roommate was a football player. Um, he was somebody I'd played baseball with my entire life, but he was just one of those good athletes that was good at everything he did. And so he was a, a kicker there at Appalachian State. And so he and I were roommates, and so because he was on the football team, I got to be friends with a lot of the football team. And so anytime they were going to go do something, they always asked me to go. You know, they didn't look at me like I was handicapped. And, you know, I don't look at myself like I'm handicapped. You know, yeah, it might take me twice as long to tie my shoes, but it takes me half as long to wash my hands. So um, <laughs> there's benefits. Um, people never asked me to help them move either. It was pretty awesome. Um, but... So one day they were going to go play basketball, and they're like, hey, Jeff, do you want to go play with us? And I'm like, yeah, I'll go play. You know, I'm not the best basketball player in the world, but I'm not the worst either. And so, you know, we went up there one day, and we're all just kind of shooting before the game starts. And so we were going to run a, a game of full court, and so we needed 10 players. So I started counting to see how many we had, and we had 11. I was like, well, that means one person's not going to get picked. I wonder who that's going to be. Um, so I was looking around. I was really hoping there was a guy there with no arms, but there wasn't. Um, and so when they picked teams, sure enough, I didn't get picked. And so I just grabbed a ball and just went off on another goal, and I was just kind of over there shooting by myself. Well, at Appalachian State, there were these four full-court basketball courts with a track that went around that people were walking and running on and stuff. And so I'm standing there shooting and stuff, and people would – this is, this is what would typically happen. People would walk by, and they would look at me, and they'd look back down. Then they would look back like, yep, that's a one-armed guy shooting basketball. It's not every day you see a one-armed guy shooting basketball. I get it, so people are going to look. But, you know, these people were in college, so I typically got the first look and the glance back, and then they were done. They didn't look at me anymore. But there was this one girl who, when she came walking by my court, she glanced over at me, she looked back down, and then she stared at me the whole time she walked by my court. I'm like, yeah, I get it. One-armed guy shooting basketball, you don't see it every day. Well, the next time she comes by my court, as soon as she gets to my court, she starts staring at me, and she stares at me the entire time she walks by. And I'm like, okay, like, I'm just shooting basketball here. The next time she gets to my court, same thing. And I'm like, listen, I'm not going to do any tricks, no one-handed cartwheels, definitely no two-handed cartwheels. Um, like, like, stop staring at me so much. And, like, after, like, the eighth or ninth time, I, like, I'm getting mad. I wanted to be like, you know, Come get you some. Um, but I didn't want to get beat up by a girl, so I didn't do that. Um, but I'm like, why? Like, you're in college. Like, this shouldn't be that big a deal to you. You should be able to get over this. But then after a couple more laps, like, then, like, the guy in me kind of kicked in. And I'm like, wait a minute. She's checking me out, you know? Like, that's what I was thinking. <laughs> she wasn't. Um, but that's what I started thinking. So I'm like, okay, she's checking me out, so, like, how do I get her, her to come talk to me? Because after I lost my, I didn't just lose my arm. I lost, like, a lot of self-confidence and all this kind of, I didn't have, like, the guts to go up and talk to a girl. And so I'm like, well, how can I get her to come talk to me? And so instead of, I had been shooting around the free throw line, I moved over by the baseline so I was a lot closer to the track so she wouldn't have as far to come walk to come talk to me. And so sure enough, like, the first time I did that, I moved over by the baseline. She comes by my court as she walks up to me to start talking to me. And you know how it is when you're talking to somebody and you can tell, like, they really want to ask you a question. And I'm like, I know you want to ask me out. I'm going to say yes. So just go ahead and say it. You know, that's what I'm thinking. And she's like, well, I was just wondering if, if you might be interested. And I'm thinking, I like where this is going. And going to church with me sometime. And I was like, No. <laughs> I'm good. <laughs> and, and the thing is, is like at the time, I was really mad at God. Like really mad at God because I thought God had taken my arm. 
But the thing is, is like, that was my own fault because I didn't know what the Bible said. You know, John 10, 10 says the enemy is the one who comes to steal, to kill, and to destroy, but that Jesus came to give us life and life more abundantly. Well, I didn't know that at the time. So I thought God had taken my arm. And so like, I was done with God. Like I had been in church my whole life and I told God, like, listen, you do your thing and I'm going to do mine. Like, this is how you treat me. You know, that's because I thought he had done it. So when this girl asked me to go to church, like, that was the, like, in my mind, I was like, this is the easiest answer I'm ever going to give to anything ever. She's like, so would you like to go to church with me sometime? I was like, sure. I was like, what the heck did I just say? Like, the answer was no. And I said, sure. So I'm one of those people, like, when I tell you I'm going to do something, like I, like, I feel really bad if I end up not following up on it. So I'm like, okay, I'll go once. And that's like, you know, just because I told her I would, and maybe she wants to take me out to eat afterwards. I don't know. Um, <clears throat> and so I went to church, and, like, I was raised. Was anybody here raised Methodist? Okay, a few of us. Um, I don't know what y'all's Methodist church was like, but, like, mine, there was no instruments. There was a piano and an organ. Does that sit right? Okay, I'm getting some confirmation here. Um, like we had a lady who would come out and the piano was on this side and the organ was on that side and she would come out and she would sit on this side and she'd play the piano for the first half of the service and then about halfway through the service she'd walk barefooted around to the other side and play the organ for the second half of the service. I don't know, that's just how we rolled in my Methodist church. Um, but when I walked into this church, like I'm seeing like musical instruments and stuff and I'm like, they must have had a concert in here last night or something because I've never seen like musical instruments in a church. So... I'm sitting there, and I'm basically in this big college student section. And they started what I called it the fast music and the slow music. I didn't know it was called praise and worship. And so, like, they start the fast music, and literally everybody around me starts jumping up and down. And I am like, what is going on in here? Like, is this a cult? Like, if, if I see Kool-Aid, I am running. You know, it's like, but I'm, like, literally standing there like, this is weird, but I'm kind of looking around, and I'm like, I am the only one not jumping. I, I probably look like the weirdo, so I was like, okay, this is what I'll do. I'll go up on my toes, and so I, this was all I'd give them. I was like, I'll give you my toes. My toes ain't leaving the ground, but I'll give you that much, so then the fast music ended, and the slow music started, and the worship for all you really smart Christians, um, but then, like, the worship music started, and everybody started doing this. And I was like, I didn't even hear the question. Like, and, like, all these, like, I, I'm, I'm, I mean, I'm, I'm serious. I have no clue what's happening. I'm like, you know, raise your hand if you're sure or something. I don't know if it's a deodorant check or what's going on. But I just knew, like, I hadn't seen this kind of stuff before. But, again, I'm the only one not doing it. So I'm like, okay, I've got, I've got to come up with something. And I didn't know about hold the TV at the time. I didn't know that was one of the worship stances that you could do, hold the TV. I didn't know that one because I had never seen anybody hold a TV or touch down or anything. And so I'm like, all right, I'm going to give one of these. But if they call on me, I don't even know what the question is, much less the answer. So I'm keeping my hand real low because I just don't understand what's going on. So after, after praise and worship, we sit down. This missionary from Africa gets up, and he's been a missionary in Africa for, like, ever. Like, he invented Africa. Like, that's how long he had been a missionary. And he starts talking about all the amazing things he'd seen God do on the mission field. You know, he's like, I've seen blind eyes open. And you got to remember, I'm sitting there thinking, God took my arm. So he's like, I've seen blind eyes open. I was like, I don't care. He's like, I've seen deaf people able to hear again. I was like, I don't care. He's like, I've seen dead people raised to life. And I was like, I don't care. He's like, I've seen arms grow out. And I was like, well, I, I, I care a little bit about that. You know, like, so now this guy's got my attention because I'm like, okay, I'm mad at God for taking my arm. And he's talking about a God who gives them back. So now this guy's got my attention because I'm like, okay, I'm going to get my arm back. It's a four-hour drive home. I'm going to go home and I'm going to show mom, mom and stepdad my, my new arm. You know, that, like, that was my plan. Now, that didn't happen. I don't want y'all to think like I got it back and then I lost it again. Like, man, this guy's really bad with right arms. No, <laughs> like that didn't happen. 
but something really cool happened that night because, you know, like I said, now, like, I came into this church mad at God. No, wanted nothing to do with him. Just, you do your thing, I'll do mine. But now this guy's really got my attention. I'm like, so he's talking about a God that gives arms back. And so now I'm paying attention, like, okay, like, I, I need to pay attention and see, like, how do I do that? How do, how do I make that happen for me? Well, at the end of the service, like, he starts talking about the goodness of God and John 10, 10 and things like that. And so at the end of the service, he gives an altar call for anybody who wants to accept Jesus as their personal Lord and Savior. So the girl who had invited me to church, she's sitting next to me, and she leans over, and she goes, are you a Christian? And I was like, yeah, I think so. She's like, well, how do you know? I was like, well, I went to church my whole life. I went three years in a row, didn't miss a single Sunday. Um, I used to be the president of our church's youth group. Before that, I was the vice president of our church's youth group. I used to speak at my church, which meant that I was in the Christmas and Easter plays. But, you know, I counted it. Um, but she's listening to me, and she notices the one thing that I never said was Jesus. I gave all the reasons why I thought that I was qualified to make it into heaven. Because I was a good person, went to church my whole life. But I never mentioned Jesus. And she's like, well, would you like to go forward just to be sure? And I was like, well, it wouldn't hurt. So I got up and I went forward. And I can't remember how many of us there was. It seems to be like it was between 12 and 18 of us that responded to accept Jesus as our Lord and Savior. And so he leads us all in the sinner's prayer. And then he said, now I want to come down and pray for each one of you individually. I was like, okay. Now, I would have been standing like right here. And he came off and started praying for people on this side. Well, I don't know if Pastor Sean and Heidi have gone over, like, prayer line etiquette. But what you're not supposed to do is this. Well, that's what I did because I'd never been in a prayer line before, so I wanted to see what was going on. So I'm standing here. I'm like, they're all the way down there. Like, no, I want to see what's happening. So I leaned forward and just kind of looked down. And I saw that he had walked up, and he had put his hands on this guy's head and started praying for him. So I immediately stood back up, and I'm like, okay, like, that's a little, that's a little bit weird. Um, at that time, I, did, I really didn't like people touching me. Like, you do your thing, and I'll do my thing, but just don't touch me. And so, like, he's working his way down the line. And so I'm basically standing there, and I'm like, like okay, God, like, this is like my first prayer after I got saved. I was like, like, I know we just got cool and everything, but, like, please just don't let him touch me. Like, he can pray for me, but just don't touch me. Like, like you let him stay over there, and I'll stay over here. And so he's getting closer and closer. And I'm like, all right, God, like, I'm serious. Like, I don't want him to touch me. So he gets to the person right next to me. And I'm like, okay, maybe if I close my eyes, he won't see me. So I close my eyes, and I'm just kind of standing there. And then the next thing I know is I feel his hands on my head. And then the next thing I knew, I was laying on the ground. And I was like... Now, he seemed like such a nice man. <laughs> like, he just led me to Jesus, and now he's pushing me down on the ground in church. Like, I don't think Jesus would have, would, like, I didn't, I had no clue. I'd never seen anybody slain in the spirit where the power of God is so strong that you just lose the ability to stand up. And now I'm laying there on, there on the floor, and I'm, like, so confused. I'm, like, I'm embarrassed. I'm, like, because the one thing my mom always told me when I was growing up was, get off the floor. When I, we were at church, get off the floor. So, like, I knew not to get on the floor in church. So I'm laying there, and I'm, like, embarrassed, and I'm like, gosh, like, what's going on? Well, as I'm laying there, I hear something really close to my head, like right over here. So I kind of rolled my head over, and I opened this eye up, and there was somebody laying on the ground next to me. I'm like, well, that's weird. So I closed that eye, and I rolled my head over the other way, and I opened this eye up, and there was somebody laying on the ground next to me over here. I'm like, all right, I guess that's just what we do. You know, the buzzer goes off, we get up, we go back to our seats, and, you know, we go on our merry way. Now, I had no clue what was happening. No clue what was happening that night. But the one thing I do know is the guy who went forward and the guy who went back to his seat were two completely different people. Like, Jesus came in and wrecked me in the best way possible. Like, I went up there with these suicidal thoughts and depressed and just hating my life. 
And like as I went back to my seat, like I, I, it was like I felt taller. Like I, I wasn't weighed down anymore. Like I just felt like, man, something has happened in my life. Like I, I can't explain it, but something has happened. And so I kind of got involved in a campus ministry there at Appalachian State. And, you know, we would go around and do these little youth events and stuff. And, like, one time the leader of the event, he was like, hey, Jeff, will you get up and share your testimony? I'm like, if you tell me what a testimony is, I'll do it. Like, I knew what a testimony was in court, but, like, I wasn't going to have an attorney asking me questions. Like, so, like, what does it mean? He's like, talk about what Jesus has done in your life. I was like, okay, I can do that. So I got up and I shared, terrified the whole time. Um, but at the end of the service, the, the room was, there was like 200 kids there. And when I got done talking, the guy who had asked me to share my testimony, he said, well, you heard what Jesus has done in Jeff's life. If you would like something like that to happen in your life, come forward. And out of all of these 200 people, one little 13-year-old boy sitting in the back corner got up, came down front, and gave his life to Jesus. And I prayed. I, honestly, I didn't really know it was a prayer at the time when I, when I prayed it. But I just said, God, that was really cool. If you want me to do that again, I will. And that was in 1996. I've done it a few times since then. And everything I told you, Joy, if you want to come up, everything I told you so far revolves around what I'm about to tell you right now. Like, it's one of those nights that I'll never forget. Like, it was just, you'll see why. But I was asked to speak at an event in Taylorsville, North Carolina, I had never been to Taylorsville before, but one of the girls I went to college with, she wanted to have this event in her, in her hometown. And so she asked me, there was going to be a few speakers there that night, and she asked me if I would be one of them. And I said, sure, I'd love to. You know, any chance to tell people about Jesus. And so, honestly, I hadn't really prepared anything. You know, I, like I was still a baby Christian. I, I knew God good, devil bad, and that was about the extent of my knowledge. I, I could quote, Jesus wept. Um, but I didn't know a whole lot, but I just knew that Jesus had changed my life. And so I hadn't really prepared anything, but God told me through a series of events, said, by the time you get up there, you're going to know exactly what to say. I was like, okay, I trust you. And so at the beginning of the service, they had a table that was set up right over here, and there were seven candles on it. And at the beginning of the service, they started lighting each one of these seven candles. And I was like, I wonder what they're doing that for. And so the girl who was, you know, hosting the event, I leaned over and I was like, why are they lighting those candles? And she said, at that time, in the last six months, they had had seven teenagers die by either suicide or car accident. So they were doing that as a memorial for them, but then doing the whole event to win some people to Jesus. And so I was, when she told me that, I was like, oh, okay. So I stood up. Um, and I was just looking at those candles and I started crying. And that was really unusual for me because I've never been a person that cries very much. Like even when I lost my arm, the first time I cried was when I'd been in the hospital for five days. And it was because I knew I wasn't going to get to play baseball anymore. And so I was crying, but then before long, I went from crying to sobbing uncontrollably. Like I was sitting on the fourth seat in and I had my head between my knees and I was bawling my eyes out. And even though I hadn't been a Christian for very long, like just over a year, I knew that God was dealing with me about something. And so I prayed this really deep spiritual prayer. You can find it in the Bible. But I said, God, what's up? It's in the Bible somewhere. First or second hesitations, I think. But, um, but I said, God, what's up? And he reminded me that after my accident, I always said, why me? And I did. I, I said that to God all the time. God, why me? I gave God a list of candidates who were more qualified to lose their arm than I was. Like, there was one guy in particular. I'm like, God, why not him? Like, he's, the, like, everybody knows he's the bad kid. Like, I'm the good one. So I'd always said, God, why me? But he reminded me that night. He said, you never asked me why I let you live that day. I was like, all right, well, I'll ask you now then. I said, God, why did you let me live that day? 
why didn't I just die and go on to heaven to be with you? And it's the only time in my life that I have audibly heard God's voice. And I know, like, some people might be like, yeah, sure, whatever. Like, I'm just telling you, like, I experienced this. I heard it with my ears. Like, to the point when I heard it, I looked at the girl next to me. I was like, did you hear that? She's like, I hear you crying. And I'm like, shut up. Um, But, like, and then the girl on the other side of me, I was like, did you hear that? And she's like, I didn't hear anything. I heard it. Like, with my physical ears, I heard it. And God spoke so clear. And he told me, he said, if you would have died that day, you would have gone to hell. And it floored me because everybody in my high school knew me as the good Christian kid. My senior year of high school, I took a class called Independent Living, and there was this survey that we had to fill out. There was 18 things in this list, and you had to list number one, what is the most important? Number 18, what is the least important? And it was things like a satisfying career, a family, lots of money, like all of these different things. And my teacher told me later on, after I'd gotten into the ministry, she said, out of every student I had your senior year, only one student put down that eternal life and salvation was the number one most important thing to them. She said, and that was you. So even though my senior year of high school, I put down that salvation and eternal life is the number one most important thing to me, that didn't give me salvation and eternal life. So when God told me that, I got really scared because I started thinking, I could be burning in hell right now. And here I am. And then I got really scared for another reason. And I was like, and this still bothers me to this day. And I said, God, how many people are out there now like I was? And they're on their way to hell and they have no idea. So when I got up and spoke that night, I knew exactly what I was supposed to talk about. I spoke, another guy spoke after me, and we saw 72 people come to Jesus. And I told God that night, I said, I'll do this every day for the rest of my life if it keeps one person from going to hell. In full disclosure, that's why Pastor Sean and Pastor Heidi brought me in. And that's why I'm here tonight. So if you would, right there where you're sitting, just bow your head and close your eyes. I don't know where you stand with Jesus. Maybe everybody in here is saved and born again, and if so, praise God. But maybe you're in here tonight, and you've never asked Jesus to be your personal Lord and Savior. Well, if that's the case, then tonight is for you. Or maybe you're in here tonight, and at one point you asked Jesus to be your Lord and Savior, but you've turned your back on him, and you've walked away, and you know you're not living the way you're supposed to. And if that's you then tonight is for you too. Or maybe you're in here tonight like I was that night when that girl said, are you a Christian? And I said, yeah, I think so. If you can't think back to a specific time when you asked Jesus to be your personal Lord and Savior, then tonight is for you too. So if that's you right where you're sitting with your head bowed, eyes closed, if that's you on any one of those three things, if you want to accept Jesus as your personal Lord and Savior for the first time, if you need to rededicate your life to him tonight because you know you're not living the way you're supposed to or you just don't know what's going to happen and you want to know that you know that you know that if anything were to happen to you from here on out that you would spend eternity in heaven with Jesus. If that's you on any one of those three things right where you're sitting with your head bowed, eyes closed, just slip your hand up in the air. I see your hands. You can put them down. Is there anybody else? I see your hand. You can put it down. Anybody else? Thank you, Jesus. Okay, everybody look up here for just a second. I saw hands go up across the church, and praise God for that. But there's one one thing that God has me do. He had me start doing this a while ago, and until he tells me to change it, I'm going to keep doing it like he tells me to do it. When Jesus died on the cross for my sins and for your sins, he did so openly. 
He didn't say, hey, I know I'm going to be crucified, but can we do it back over there behind that row of trees where nobody can see me? Or can we do it on the other side of the mountain where nobody can see me? Like, he hung on that cross, beaten to the point that you couldn't recognize him, either completely naked or partially naked where everybody could see him. And he did that for my ugly sins and he did that for your ugly sins. So I only think it's right that when we come to Jesus or come back to Jesus that we do so openly as well. Because I will tell you this much, if you can't make a stand for God in church, there's no way you'll ever make a stand for God out in this world. So here in just a second, I'm gonna ask you if you raised your hand, should have raised your hand or wanted to raise your hand, I'm gonna ask you to get up out of your seat and come line up right here in front. Line up right here facing me and I just wanna say a prayer with you. I just want you to know that you know that you know that if anything happens to you, that you have asked Jesus to be your personal Lord and Savior. So here on the count of three, when I count to three, I just want you to get up and come down here to the front. Well, what is, what's everybody going to think? I'll be honest. I don't care what anybody thinks. Because there's going to come a day when you're going to stand in front of God, your creator, and it's going to come down to what did you do with what Jesus did for you on the cross? You can't be like, well, God, I was worried about what my neighbor would think. I could give a flip what your neighbor thinks. It comes down to what you do with what Jesus did for you. So on the count of three, if you raised your hand, should have raised your hand or wanted to raise your hand, just get up and come line up right here. And I'm going to say a prayer with you. I'm not going to ask for your credit card number or anything like that. You can give it to me later. I'll go buy a pair of hey dudes. I don't care. But I want you to take this opportunity to get right with Jesus. So on the count of three, just get up out of your seat. Just come stand right here facing me, okay? On the count of three. One, two, three. Y'all come on forward. Thank you, Jesus. Thank you, Jesus. Yeah, just line up right here, right here. Thank you, Jesus. Thank you, Jesus. I knew you two were coming. When I saw y'all back there coloring on your hands when I first walked in here, I was like, God's going to get them tonight. I didn't see the rest of y'all when y'all came in, so that didn't mean that y'all messed up. Like, I'm not saying that. I just knew it in my heart when I walked in. So... The first thing I want to do is say thank you. And I'm not saying thank you for me because I didn't do anything for you. I'm just a goofy one-armed white boy who loves Jesus. I'm saying thank you for accepting what Jesus did for each and every one of you on the cross. Because like the thing is, did you know like if you were the only one, Jesus still would have died on the cross just for you. That's how ridiculous his love is for all of us. And like I don't care how young you are, or how not young you are, like, it's a clean slate. I love the way the Bible talks about that he casts our sins as far as the east is from the west. Because did you know that if he said it, as far as he cast them from the north to the south, like, you can start going north eventually to the point that you start going south again. But if you start going east, you never start going west. That's how far your sins are separated from him now. So I also want to thank you too for just being bold enough to get up and come down here. I know it's not the easiest thing to do. You could probably still see the claw marks on that church, that, that church in Boone where I was grabbing that seat like, oh, I don't want to go, but I went. So I just want to thank y'all for being bold enough to make that step. So now I'm going to pray a prayer and I want you to repeat it back after me. Loud enough where I can hear it, where you can hear it, where the person standing next to you can hear it. Just pray this prayer. Just say, Dear God, I admit that I'm a sinner and I confess my sins to you. I believe that Jesus came, that he died, that he rose, that he lives, and that he is my Lord. I choose this day to live the rest of my life 
for you. In Jesus' name, amen. Y'all just made the best decision that you're ever going to make. Like, I'll tell you this, like, that's my wife sitting over there. She's just beautiful beyond words. Like, it's, like, she doesn't owe me money or anything. Like, she married me on purpose. But, like, she's the second best decision that I've ever made. Jesus is the best decision that I've ever made. I hope I'm at least second on her list. I know she would say that Jesus is the best decision that she's ever made as well. So now I just want to encourage you. Just a couple more minutes. This is something that I try to tell whether you're a new believer, whether you're rededicating your life, whether you're having that no-so experience that I hate to give you bad news right after this just happened, but you're probably going to sin again. You might sin before you walk out of here. But the thing is, when you mess up, there's so many times because as a, as a sinner, when you mess up, you want to turn and run from God. That's what Adam and Eve did when they messed up. They tried to hide in the bushes like God wasn't going to be any good at hide and seek. you know. But the thing is, instead of turning and running from God, we need to turn and run to Him. God, I messed up. I'm sorry. Help me. Now, the thing I also want you all to know is you have a church full of people here that are here to walk with you. You've got some amazing pastors that are, will walk every step of the way with you, that are here for you. So I just want you all to know, like, when you mess up and you will, it doesn't mean it's over. That's why I'm going to give you all a homework assignment. Go read 1 John chapter 1 verse 9. That verse is in the Bible so that when you mess up, you can go to that verse and be like, okay, I messed up. God, I repent for what I did. I'm sorry. Please help me turn and not go that way again. Okay? Do you want them to go to them or do you want to come up? Okay. Y'all stay here for a second because I don't know what Pastor Sean wants to do, but thank all of y'all. Come tomorrow. Tomorrow, I'm not sharing my testimony, but it's one of the most important messages God has ever laid on my heart that I'm going to be sharing tomorrow morning and like the world needs it. So if you want to come tomorrow, I think it would be really cool. So Pastor Sean. Amen. We're going to, uh, first of all, I'm just as excited as he is that you guys did this. We... <laughs> We're giving you, uh, what's being handed to you is a New Believers Pack that's from the church here. It has a Bible in it, some books in it, all of that good stuff. Uh, what Jeff was talking about as far as uh, your new relationship with the Lord or recommitting your life to the Lord, whatever it is, wherever you're at uh, in your relationship with the Lord, inside that bag, and you can look at it later, is a card that looks like this. And it just says starting point. And on the back... There's just some instructions on what we'd like you to do uh, as far as uh, looking over. There's a book in there, different things like that. But there's also a place uh, on the second point on this card, and it just shares about our website and New Believers classes, what we have on there. And there's actually six messages on there that are audio messages, and the order is given here on the card where we'd like you to listen to them. And all it will do is just give you more understanding about the decision you made today, about your heavenly father, all these different things that you need to know. Because the enemy, he is a sorry cuss, which means he will try to work to get you away from the decision that you made to serve God. And so that's why you need a church family. I'm just going to reiterate what Jeff said. You are welcome here. We would love to have you here. Um, this is... This is uh, probably, a, I don't know, it's not quite half the congregation, maybe not even that. Uh, but tomorrow morning we have a service at 1030. And then after that we're going to have a big picnic with a whole bunch of food again. Because we just like to eat. 
you know, and a whole bunch of fun we're going to meet at the park. Um, but come back tomorrow. If you have family or friends, you know, you think, man, I'd love to bring them. They need to hear about this as well. Bring them with you. And uh, we're just really excited to see you guys give your hearts to Jesus. The best decision you'll ever make. The best decision you'll ever make. I gave my heart to Jesus when I was 19 years old. And believe it or not, I know I don't look it, but I'm 45. And we've been serving and loving Jesus, me and my wife, ever since. I mean, it's just been, woo, fun. And seeing you guys give your heart to Jesus, we know the devil loses and we know God wins. So know this, you are loved. We will continue to pray for you. And please join us uh, as, as the church family. Make this your church home if you don't have one. And we'll continue to love you and care for you as we, as we go. Oh, uh, yeah, they can. Yeah, so right after, thank you, Bruce. Uh, right after at the Welcome Center out there. Actually, any visitor who's here for the first time, you know who you are. Um, as you're walking out of the Welcome Center there, we'll have somebody there. We'd love to give you a free T-shirt. Uh, thank you for coming. All that good stuff. Just to bless you, we do that anyway with all of our visitors. So, man, as they go back to their seat, give them another hand. Praise God. Thank you for taking the time to listen today. If you would like more information about Faith Family Church, including service times and location, visit faithfamilybillings.com.